Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to join us. I am the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put tools and knowledge in your hands for you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. Every HR professional and recruiter knows the cost of a bad hire. Time and money spent on hiring and training goes down the tubes and now you're left with nothing but that same vacancy. Wouldn't it be nice if you could avoid making bad hires in the first place? Today's guest is Jeff Hyman. He's the Chief Talent Officer at Recruit Rockstars, an organization with a simple mission. No more bad hires. He launched his recruiting career at Hydric and Struggles and Spencer Stewart. And today he's the Chief Talent Officer at Chicago-based Strong Suit Executive Search. Along the way, he created four companies of his own. Mr. Hyman is the author of the best-selling book, Recruit Rockstars, the 10-step playbook to find the winners and ignite your business. As a professor at Kellogg School of Management, he teaches the MBA course in recruiting. He is also the host of the five-star rated Strong Suit podcast and weekly contributor to Forbes. He holds a master's degree from Kellogg and a bachelor's from Wharton. And he's the opening keynote speaker at RecruitCon 2019, which is entitled The 10 Deadly Sins of Recruiting and will be on May 9th. That event is in Austin, Texas. There are workshops on the 8th and the main conference is on May 9th and 10th. We'll include information and links in the description. And we really hope you can join us. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm thrilled to be here, Jim. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Let's jump in. How did you get started in the talent field? I stumbled into it. I wish I could tell you it was part of some master plan. I'd be lying to you, Um, as I think a lot of people do uh, fall into it. Um, You know, I started my first company uh, when I was about 25, and it was in the uh, internet category. And I quickly learned that uh, without the right people, uh, this was going to be a pretty short ride. And I just became became enamored by it. I became fascinated by the complexity and the impact it can make to have a, a team of A players throughout the business. And so I decided to make that my life's calling. And for 25 years, that's pretty much all I've done. What is it about it that fascinates you so much? Um, probably that it's 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 kind of art and kind part science, right? You can't reduce it to a spreadsheet, uh, which was never my forte. <laughs> if you look at my grades in finance and accounting, um, but there's definitely best practices, and you definitely can improve over time. Uh, it's part psychology, it's part therapist, it's part detective, it's part um, consultant, it's part giving some tough love. Um, it's part persistence. It has just so many characteristics to it and it's changing so fast that I just, you know, I I find it a fascinating field from all dimensions, recruiting, retention, compensation design. It, it's, it really comes down to how do you amass a team that is better than your competitor's team? And so many companies are so bad at it. that just by doing a few things well, you can actually set yourself apart. Well, I'm sure that we'll get into what some of those things are. But first, I want to ask you what the biggest mistake that you see HR executives and hiring managers make. Probably one of the 
biggest or the first that comes to mind is because many executives and HR folks have not studied the science, and I mean the boring science, I've read all these studies over the years, as to what really predicts a candidate's or individual success at your company. Most people rely on absolutely the wrong predictors. They're looking at the candidate's job title or what industry they worked in or what school they went to, uh, what their GPA was. All these things that science has shown are relatively useless predictors <laughs> of how the person's going to do at your company in a specific role, in a specific situation. Whereas if you focus on the right predictors, uh, which, which I'm happy to share because there's nothing you know, proprietary about it, uh, you can increase your success rate, increase your accuracy rate dramatically, like you could be double. And the impact that can make on a business is huge. And so one of the big mistakes, and therefore one of the simplest ways to improve, is by focusing on things that are actually predictive of success as opposed to getting thrown off the scent by these uh, seemingly important but pretty meaningless things. Well, why don't we just get right into that? What do you? What are those those predictors? Well, I'll tell you what they're not. So, what they're not are as some people take comfort in looking at a resume, and they will assume, "Hey, this individual went to so and so school, you know, a top three school or top five. They must be intelligent." Mm -hmm. They must be competent. Uh, and, and the truth is that that person probably is intelligent or certainly above average intelligence, but doesn't mean that they're right for your specific position. So it's very dangerous to rely on that. Just as Google has stopped looking at GPA because they went back and found that it wasn't a very good predictor. Hmm. Um, another example would be someone's title, right? Titles vary so much from company to company that unless you really drill into the detail of what the person has been doing in that role, and I mean detail like day-to-day -day basis, I can't assume that a director of sales is at your company is the same as a director of sales at this company. So there's many of those examples, countless examples. What is highly predictive, uh, as an example, is what I would call DNA. And there's a chapter about DNA in, in my book, which is how someone is hardwired at a very young age, by the way, you know, psychologists tell us that by age eight, we are the person that we're going to become, right? Mm -hmm. Whether we're extroverted or detail oriented or musical or analytical, creative, funny, whatever it may be, that is a amazing predictor of how the person's going to perform on the job because it's hardwired, right? You can't teach it. You can't coach it. You can't train it. So if I'm hiring you for a job that requires immense amount of detail and attention to detail. And that's just not in your DNA. You're a big picture thinker and you hate the detail. You could fake it for a while, but pretty soon I'm gonna, we're going to be having tough discussions and that's the beginning of the end. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I knew that up front and I knew, hey, her DNA or his is just not detail orientation, not a good fit for this role. Uh, so th that's just one example and there's many others. But those predict those things can help you accurately predict someone's performance. And DNA is one of the first things I look at, especially these days when the job itself changes so fast, so often. Uh, but DNA is very consistent, and that shows you what someone is made of.
Well, let's, let's talk about that. How, you know, I mean, I think pretty much every HR manager is aware that things are changing rapidly around them. Um, but maybe not exactly how, how has it changed? How has recruiting changed over the past few years? In many ways. Uh, you know, it used to be when I began in this field 20 some odd years ago that the hard part was finding candidates. Literally, you know, we're looking to make a hire. Finding candidates is the hard part of the search. And now whether you are internal, external in HR, whether you're a recruiter, doesn't matter. Uh, finding candidates is the simplest part of the search, right? If you or a client gives me uh, a spec and we agree on, the, on what we're looking for, within 24 hours, I already know the three or 500 people that are going to be at the top of the funnel that's going to lead to one rock star coming at the bottom, right? So thanks to LinkedIn and Google and you know infinite other candidate identification tools that the entire recruiting process has changed. The hard part now is the assessment mm. part, right? That's the tricky part because a resume doesn't show you, a LinkedIn profile doesn't show you. I haven't seen any artificial intelligence that shows you in any meaningful way. And so knowing how to go about that process is the hard part. So that has changed dramatically. Uh, and, and it's actually become worse because now the candidates can click on apply so easily you post a job and you'll have 500 applicants in five minutes, yet maybe two of them are worth talking to. So um, we're kind of drinking from the fire hose of candidates in many cases. So that's a, that's a big way that the job market has changed. The other, of course, as you know, is uh, we're in the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. And so whereas the employer used to be the buyer, the candidate is now the buyer. And that changes everything about how you need to recruit, uh, attract candidates, uh, set up a process by which they'll even engage with you, what you talk about with them, how you interview, how you follow up with them. All of that changes when you're at a 3.7% unemployment rate. Yeah, that was a great answer. Is, um, you know, I, I've hired people before, and I know exactly what you're talking about with having to sift through you know, people, people will just apply knowing darn well that they're not a good fit <laughs> and, uh, you know, or, or that they don't have any, any experience in, in the field that you're talking about. So yeah, sorting through all those is a real challenge. Um, I can't even imagine what the big companies have to go through. If you're, if you're a Google or an Amazon, you know, a top 10 company, you know, then life is good, right? You have an, you have hundreds of thousands, millions of people that want to come work for you, you have a different set of problems, right? Which is how do you find the needles in those haystacks? Um, but even once you do, you still got to make sure that they're right for that role in that situation with that manager, et cetera. Well, what do you think is working these days when it comes to recruiting? Uh, you know, the, the, the basics still work. The basics of understanding what you're looking for, which I know sounds obvious, but 90% of people don't start with a very clear understanding of what do I need in this candidate, in this position, at this particular point in time, and have the discipline to cre create a scorecard, right, which is not rocket science, uh, to write a very compelling job invitation that, that appeals to people and gets them engaged and open to having a conversation. 
Most people are miserable in their job. 85% of people are open to a call, receptive to a call. So the, the level of disengagement has never been higher. But most companies are just so awful at trying to engage them that candidates just say, eh, and, and they look the other way. So those fundamental basic things still work. Uh, but a lot of people have lost sight of it or have tried to rely on technology to do it. Um, and and I, I, I just don't think it's going to. I don't think it's going to change. I think you've covered this, you know, in bits and pieces already, but what doesn't work? Well, I, a lot of companies still bring a very arrogant approach to the recruiting process. And by that, I mean, they still think they're the buyer. Uh, they still feel like this candidate should feel lucky that we have, you know, tapped him or her like God and said, we want to talk with you about a position and come in for the interview. That arrogant approach uh, doesn't work anymore, uh, turns off candidates. They will go on Glassdoor and tell millions of other candidates, and pretty soon you got a problem because now uh, you know, your, your arrogance uh, and, and how you treat candidates, much like if you tried to build a business treating customers that way, doesn't work. Um, so whether you're Google or whether you're a five-person startup, uh, taking a a humble approach and remembering that at 3.7% unemployment rate, you're the seller. You're not the buyer. You need to educate people on why they should even have a conversation with you, why they should even um, spend time with you. You need to do, you need to dig what you're well before you're thirsty and not try to hire people just in time. You need to get ahead of it months or quarters to build a pipeline of talent. Um, Again, not rocket science. It, I describe it as simple but not easy uh, because it takes time. It takes making this a priority, which not everyone's willing to do. You know, it's a, I'm glad that you brought up Glassdoor because I feel like part of my job should, like maybe 20% of my job should just be yelling at, at our listeners and at our, our readers. Glassdoor exists, you know, whether it's employee motivation, whether it's engagement, whether it's retention, you know, that that tool that we can all see affects every one of those. You know, if you're not good at engaging your employees, someone's going to say that if you're, if you're not paying people enough, someone's going to say that. And I know I look, I look at it for our company and I look at it for our competitors and I look at it for companies that, you know, I have, have an interest in forming a relationship with. Uh, do you have any, any other advice for people uh, about Glassdoor? Well, there have been a lot of studies on Glassdoor and the, you know, the veracity, the accuracy of the reviews, much like any other review site, whether it's Amazon or Yelp, right. you name it. Um, there was a huge expose in the Wall Street Journal just recently. So the problem is it's not going away. And whether it's Glassdoor or some other replacement for Glassdoor, uh, you know, the genie's out of the bottle when it comes to how you treat your employees and, and, and how you treat your candidates, both. So somehow, some way, you need to get the religion uh, pretty fast that uh, it's going to become easier to recruit and hire rock star performers if you take this stuff seriously and treat them well, which, by the way, does not mean you need to pay top dollar because you don't. You don't need to be the highest paying job in town. Uh, and on the other hand, if you treat candidates like crap and you treat your employees like crap, You've got a real big problem. It's like treating your customers like crap. Uh, and it's going to downward spiral much faster than ever before. 
So what I tell people is you may not like what you see on Glassdoor, but that's what your candidates are seeing. It's the first place they go. And so you better do something uh, as opposed to just hoping it's going to go away because hope is not a strategy. Um, and I've seen it make the difference. I mean, literally, I will talk to candidates who will not engage, will not come to the table, will not have a discussion with one of my clients just because their glass door scores are low and maybe even unfairly low. Um, it's that impactful to people. Candidates just, you know, they have infinite choices now. That's a, that's a great answer. Maybe you could uh, give us some statistics to show why hiring matters. Oh, my God. There's infinite. Um, well, probably the biggest and scariest is that, uh, you know, 50% is the average hiring accuracy, 50%, wow. which basically means we could skip this whole process. We could skip the interviews. We could skip the reference checks, background checks. We could skip all this stuff, flip a coin and have the same accuracy. <laughs> and that's, and that's pathetic, right? Like what other part of your business would you be okay with 50% accuracy? Um, best in class, you know, is 90%. You're never going to get to hundred percent. This is not a perfect science, right. but the difference between 50% and 90% is a game changer, right? That's the difference between a world-class company that is a talent magnet that has people lined up outside the door to come work there and a revolving door place. That's just going nowhere. Um, so that's a huge statistic, and it's important to look yourself in the mirror and say, you know, 18 months later, are we happy we hired this person? It doesn't even matter that you – even if you haven't parted ways with that individual, if your answer is not, oh my god, I'm thrilled we hired her, <laughs> then it's a no, right? And most companies I talk to, I hate to say it, they're not far off that average. I mean maybe I'll see 60 70% once in a while, but – it's usually, yeah, we're kind of 50%, which stinks. Uh, that's a key statistic. Uh, another key statistic is how long it takes. Um, in a job market like this, you can't afford for a search to take months or quarters. You need to be very clear on what it is you're looking for. You need to have your pipeline built in advance before you need it. And you need to be prepared to move swiftly and decisively when it comes to finding a candidate that you're like, this is the right person. you got to move. Otherwise, they have five other offers within a couple of weeks. Um, so there's a lot of statistics around speed and efficiency of the process. Um, and again, it doesn't mean you have to pay the most. This is not – you need to pay enough. Philosophically, I actually like to pay at the at the seventy five to eightieth percentile range. Mm -hmm. uh, so paying above average, but not paying top of market. Right? There's always someone that's going to pay more than you. Right? You got to pay enough, uh, and and candidates will be drawn to your the other things that you offer, presuming you have other things you offer. Um, they they understand that that last five or ten thousand dollars is not the end all be all. If you have other benefits, if you have other career paths, if you are able to offer them other challenges, scopes of responsibility, stretch projects, etc., they will, uh, in some cases, take a lateral move, sometimes even a, a, a reduction uh, to get their learning curve back, you know, back up. Yeah, those are, you know, it's a, that 50% statistic, I mean, I think everyone listening should be really concerned 
when they hear that. Um, especially, especially since the, you know, the number one thing that everybody does is look at resumes and conduct background checks and do all that, do all that stuff. You know, uh, I always looked at those as, I mean, I like every other person have to engage in that same process because that's just how, how people do things. But it's almost like a, can you make a perfect resume test? Not a, are you a good employee test? Yep. Correct. You say one wrong thing on a resume, no one will hire you, but you might be the best employee out there. A great candidate or a great interview is not necessarily a great employee. It's not, it doesn't indicate the person is ideal for that role, for that situation. Your job, if you're in HR, if you're in recruiting, if you're a hiring manager, is to see through the candidate to the real person underneath. And that means doing things differently. That means not trying to scare the candidate, but putting them at ease so that in an interview, you actually get to the authentic person underneath as opposed to making them sweat it out. And then you're getting a, a false person. You're getting a candidate. And then you they show up on day one and you're surprised that it's not they're not who you thought. It's because you didn't see the real person. You saw the candidate version of the person. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you, uh, you know, you'll get more into the details of this um, at your session um, at RecruitCon. How do people get there? I mean, if let's say you have 500, 500 candidates like you're talking about in a few minutes, you, you can't, can you even talk to, to them all? How can you get there without, without talking to them? Or is that even possible? So how do you... How do you find the needle in the haystack? Yeah. So no, you can't talk to 500 people. It's it's mathematically impossible because if you're going to do this the right way, let's start from the bottom of the funnel and work our way up, which is how you should do it. To do this the right way, you genuinely need to invest a good amount of time with that finalist or semi-finalists to feel confident, comfortable that you've made the right decision. And by the way, to make them feel the same way. So there's the, that's the selling part. So all that means that you need to fairly swiftly decide who you're going to invest that time with, right? And even in my book and, and at my presentation, I'll go through this uh, on kind of what the funnel looks like that I've found over 25 years is very consistent. And that means getting down to 20 people that are kind of semi-finalists and narrowing that down to five to six pretty quickly. And then investing an inordinate amount of time with those five, getting to know them thoroughly so that I can prevent false negatives or false positives. Um, that means being prepared. It means knowing what questions to ask. It means having the right number of interviewers, which is not eight or 10 or 15 like some companies. <laughs> Um, it means having the scorecard in advance so we know what it is we're looking for. So when we find it, we're able to move. Most people don't even have a scorecard, so they say, I'll know it when I see it. Well, mm. So then you're tempted to just kiss all these frogs. The process drags on forever. And by the time you do like candidate number 80, you've lost candidate number two because they've got three other offers. So uh, this totally can be done, but it does require a different mindset, and I'll, I'll certainly talk about that at the session. 
Well, you know, we've come to the part where then I come to this in a lot of these these podcasts where it's, you know, let's say we have these people that are listening and they're convinced and they, they know they need to make a change. Um, and then they have to bring that change to the CEO. And uh, I mean, people have talked forever about how do you get the CEO to focus uh, on talent? Do you have any thoughts on that? My answer is probably not one that's going to be very popular, but I'll tell you anyway. If as an HR executive or HR leader, or even if you're not an executive, but you're kind of a, more of a mid-level HR manager, if you're a CEO, and by CEO, I, I kind of mean your top team, doesn't yet understand that talent is number one, two, and three in building the business. I don't care what kind of business it is, what industry, size, function, or geography. If they don't understand that by now, you really have to wonder, are they ever going to get it? And if the answer to that question is, I don't know, like he just doesn't seem to care about people. He puts the product first or she puts the financial results first or whatever, or they put the board first and they're good at managing up, but don't really care about managing and leading down. Then you got a difficult decision to make. And frankly, I think the decision is, should I be at this company, right? Like literally, is Jim wasting his time? And should he be at a different organization where value where, where people do come first? Now, I'm not saying you should up and quit tomorrow, but I will say that we're not this is not nineteen seventy. There's enough data, there's enough evidence. We're in the tightest labor market in fifty years. And if a leader, a CEO, a board, management team don't get it by now, you gotta start to wonder, are they ever gonna get it? And uh, that means deciding if you wanna continue to invest the best years of your career at an organization like that. And you, you don't look at what they say. Look at what they do. Does talent have a seat at the top table? Does it report directly to the CEO? Is he or she spending their time on it? Are they interviewing candidates? A CEO or leader should be spending half their time on this stuff um, as opposed to it being an afterthought. And so you can just look at the evidence, right? Now, before you make the decision to, you know, to leave and to vote with your feet, you can have that discussion. Educate the CEO. Maybe if they're a first-time CEO and they, you know, twenty-five-year-old founder, they don't know, and so give them a shot or give her a chance. Um, educate them on data, like we've talked about on this discussion. Uh, show them the difference between A players and B players. They may just not know, um, and see if they're open to being coached. You almost have to mentor the CEO when it comes to talent and and earn your place as their consigliere, right? Their advisor. If they're not open to that, then you might just be wasting time. Well, that's a, you know, it's a hard truth, but I think it's one that people need to hear. So I really appreciate you, uh, you being direct with me about that. Yeah. Um, well, I think that that should about do it. Thanks so much for taking uh, the time to, to join us today. It's my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to the event. I've already spoken with a bunch of attendees. It's, it's going to be well attended and terrific. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And just a reminder to our listeners that the event we are talking about is RecruitCon 2019. It's taking place in the beginning of May down in Austin, Texas. We have workshops on the 8th and the main conference is on May 9th and 10th. And on May 9th, we'll have our opening keynote, which will be given by Jeff Hyman and is entitled The 10 Sins of Recruiting. We really hope everyone can join us. It's gonna be a great event. Links and relevant information will be in the description. So listeners, thank you so much 
for taking the time to join us and please feel free to reach out to us on twitter at hrworkspodcast if you have any thoughts or concerns about the podcast in general or if you just want to say hello thank you for listening this is jim davis with hr works